I'm Amanda Littman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Baz is still gone this week, spending time with his very cute new baby, but he'll be back with us soon once he's truly bonded with the little fresh one. In the meantime, our guest this week is Tiana Epps-Johnson. Tiana is the founder and executive director of the Center for Tech and Civic Life, a nonpartisan organization that's focused on helping local election departments across the country bring their old, dated voting systems into the 21st century. They do training, they do funding, so that everybody who wants to vote can vote. One of the things that I find really troubling and that we'll continue talking about is that election officials across the country aren't getting the basic financial support or resources they need to literally administer elections. This was happening long before the pandemic, but 2020 added extra costs like hazard pay and PPE to an already meager budget that made those elections incredibly challenging. And that's before you even get into Trump's lies about a rigged election. So it's understandable why lots of local election officials are seeking to retire or leave the field. Now, it really doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, a conservative, a progressive, in a red district or a blue one. We all suffer and our democracy suffers when Congress doesn't cough up the money we need to help election administrators do their jobs. But before we get to that conversation, which I loved so much, I actually want to talk about two things that have been happening this week. In one of our first episodes, Faz and I talked with union organizer Josh Brewer and Amazon employee Jennifer Bates about their work in Bessemer, Alabama, to bring a union to the Amazon warehouse there. And ultimately, the unionization effort in Alabama failed. Earlier this week, a National Labor Relations Board member had recommended that the board throw out the union election, saying that Amazon interfered in the vote and could possibly recommend a new election in the coming weeks. There's more to come on this story, but if you listen to that episode, which if you haven't yet, go back and find it and wherever you get your shows. I think this is a really important fight for the unionization effort writ large and is one that we'll be keeping a really close eye on. Second thing I wanted to call out for you that I think is worth paying attention to, and it's directly related to the conversation that Tiana and I have, was a very long story by Jane Mayer in The New Yorker. Jane Mayer is known for being one of the most prolific writers about especially Republican big money. She wrote an incredible book, Dark Money, a couple years ago that is a must read if you haven't read it yet. This story in particular is about the audit that Republicans are running in Arizona and the big money funding it. Unsurprisingly, the Heritage Foundation, the Koch brothers, the major Republican donors who run shady family foundations who are the same folks who've been funding many of the anti-abortion fights and anti-voting rights fights that we've talked about in previous episodes are similarly funding this audit. Now, the story is worth reading, not just because of the big money behind it, but also because it is so clear what they are doing here. They are using this audit in Arizona, trying to go through ballot by ballot to try and lay the groundwork for ultimately undercutting future election results. If it works in Arizona, if they are able to seed even a little bit of doubt in the outcome of this election, they can use that as rationalization to not certify the results or change which electors are sent to the electoral college. It's a really dangerous precedent that Republicans in Arizona are setting, and it's funded by the mega, mega Republican donors who are really trying to ensure that if you are not a Republican voter, your vote doesn't matter. So read the story. Tell me what you think. I want to hear from you. 
it really, I think, sent a little bit of a shiver up my spine of what is possible when we just under-engage in these processes. You know, this is the kind of thing where I'm not sure what the answer is to fight back, but we should keep a really close eye on it and ensure that everybody watching knows who's funding it and what the intended goal is. With that, let's go to my conversation with Tiana Epps-Johnson from the Center for Tech and Civic Life. Tiana Epps-Johnson, welcome to Battleground. Hi, Amanda. So excited to be here. I am so glad to have you because your work covers one of my favorite topics, which is the ways in which the giant structures and institutions within which we're all working and living are deeply broken. (laughs) So let's do some quick defining the terms here. Who are you and what do you do? I like to think about it as lots of opportunity for improvement, (laughs) but I am Tiana Epps-Johnson. I'm the founder and executive director at the Center for Tech and Civic Life, and we are a national nonprofit that works across the country to support local election departments, build their capacity, their skills, the tools that they have to do their work, and actually the resources, the actual funding that they have to make it happen so that we might have elections that are secure and that allow anyone who wants to participate to actually do that in the ways that they intend. And so we're really laser focused on that. And there is a lot of work to do to actually make our voting process work in a way where your access to democracy isn't dependent on your zip code. Can you explain a little bit about how elections are funded in the United States? In most countries, there is a centralized voting authority at usually the federal national level that makes decisions and helps to make sure that elections are administered so that the logistics work, so that they're secure, all the things that are like polling places, Mm -hmm. storage, all the just back end parts of the actual voting process happen. In the U.S., we don't have a centralized voting authority. Instead, we have about 8,000 election departments, a really bottom-up system that are in communities across the country. And each one of those 8,000 local election departments, usually at the city or county level, have a tremendous amount of independent responsibility over our actual voting experience. Those local election departments are doing things like making sure that there are enough polling places for voters to cast ballots at and doing the work to actually equip those polling places with staff and equipment and the things that are required for the voting process to actually work. Those election departments are responsible for maintaining critical systems uh, that are on the back end, like our databases, where information about voter registration and other things are stored. And so those folks really have a direct role in defending our democracy from hostile foreign attack. And these election departments are just doing year-round work to engage and support voters. And because it's a really localized structure, your question about funding really follows. So (laughs) much like schools, elections are funded or the actual administration of elections are funded primarily at the local level. And then there's also funding that comes from the state and federal level. And what that means when elections are funded at the local level is that the budget that an election department has to actually deliver democracy can be wildly disparate depending on the resources that that local community has. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're in a community that has a relatively impoverished tax base, it probably follows that your election department funding follows that Mm -hmm. and that you might have fewer resources to have enough polling places or to inform voters about how the process works or to keep the process secure than even your community next door. And we've really seen the data bear that out where there are election departments that are spending 
$2 per registered voter to make the process work in other election departments that are spending mm. over $60 per registered voter. And you can imagine just the disparity in the quality that you might experience if you have that difference in resources. What does that look like in practice? Like a department that's spending $2 per voter is giving what kind of experience versus 60? What does that money buy you? Yeah, well, let's think about what we would hope to expect when we are engaging as a voter. Mm -hmm. When we think about an awesome, delightful voter experience, <laughs> it means that we're being invited to participate as members of the public, that we know when we need to engage, we know the deadlines, we have the information that we need to actually choose the candidates yeah. on our ballot, not just the folks at the top of the ticket, but the folks all the way down mm -hmm. the ballot. You know, those are some of the key elements of the experience that might work when election departments have the resources that they need. Mm -hmm. When election departments don't have those resources, what we see are things like not enough equipment or polling places available, and that results in things like long lines. Mm -hmm. If you don't have enough facilities for people to cast ballots or enough stations for people to actually um, do that, then you're going to see long lines. Um, it also might mean that election departments don't have the resources to inform the public about how to even engage in the first place. Or right now in a time where we're really concerned about quality information and not connecting the public with misinformation, when election departments don't have resources to do things like communicate, it means that it creates the environment for mis and disinformation to really flourish. And so there are so many things from the logistics to the information to just the quality of the experience that really are resource dependent. And we've seen decades and decades of under-earned disinvestment in this critical part of our election system. While there is so much more money being poured into the sort of campaign and the electoral side, that's really a sort of cycle by cycle investment, but not this deep investment that we need in the long term for this really fundamental part of um, our democracy that happens to be crumbling right now because we are not investing in it properly. And most voters and election departments are paying the price. So when we talk about infrastructure, people usually think about like roads and bridges. And the worst case scenario is bridge crumbles, hundreds of cars fall into the water. What is the worst case scenario for election administration and infrastructure? Let's first talk about what election infrastructure is. Yeah. So the Department of Homeland Security in 2017 designated elections as critical infrastructure. And they think about election infrastructure as three core parts. There is the physical components of infrastructure. Those are things like voting locations and storage facilities and places mm -hmm. where they're processing facilities. There's the key sort of technological parts of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And those are things like voter registration systems and reporting systems. And then there's the human piece. Elections are very people powered. And so there are the parts that are about the staff that actually could manage and maintain those systems. And so all of that are what we consider election infrastructure. When I think about worst cases, there are a lot of them. If there is a voter who is interested in participating in the process, who wants to, as one expression of their citizenship, show up and cast a ballot, and they're not able to because they don't have adequate facilities or you know, a system went down and they weren't able to register before the deadline, that to me in itself is a worst case. Yeah. But the thing that really is on my mind right now is that we have seen across lots of different sectors, malware, ransomware attacks 
bring some systems to their knees. Mm. We saw attacks on different pipelines and the ways that had really halted the ability to do major things in our country. Yeah. I keep thinking about what if we were experiencing one of these ransomware attacks, but it was on an election department and we were in early voting in October. Hmm. Or if it were on an election department or several election departments and we were in the vote counting process, that would not only have the potential to disrupt the actual process itself, but certainly has the potential to disrupt confidence. And these are the types of things that we can work to prevent when we are investing in this election infrastructure so that, for example, election departments are able to defend their cyber systems. I don't think like normal people really understand just how crumbling our election infrastructure is. Is there a couple examples that stand out to you as just like the most egregious crumbling election administration infrastructure? There are. I think we need to be able to hold a few things that are like absolutely true at once that are also a little bit in tension. I think the first thing that we have to recognize is that last year, election departments against insurmountable odds against a pandemic when faced with record turnout in a time that was really challenging for our democracy, were able to muster the (laughs) resilience and show up every day to deliver the most secure election that we've ever seen in our history. So that part is true. Great. Good job all around. (laughs) And also, they did it despite what they had available to them to make that happen. Election departments are really, truly working with crumbling, outdated infrastructure, and it's truly a miracle that they were able to make that happen. So as I mentioned before, the Department of Homeland Security named elections to be critical infrastructure. There's just a handful of things that are designated critical infrastructure that are so important to protect because of our national security that we have to pay close attention to making sure that they are bolstered. Mm -hmm. And from our perspective, we have to actually follow up with investing in elections like they are critical infrastructure. And we haven't so far. And so what that looks like is many folks voting on equipment that was purchased before the iPhone was even invented. Mm. The vast majority of election departments, according to a survey that the AP did in 2019, are using systems that rely on Windows 7 or earlier software. That's really old. <laughs> um, you might not remember when <laughs> Windows 7 yeah, was released. Really it old. was 2009. <laughs> and when you work in technology, one of the things that you really get concerned with is when software like Windows 7 gets to the end of its life cycle, usually a decade. So that, if you're paying attention, was 2019. What that means is that Microsoft stopped sending regular security patches and updates to keep those systems up to date. Mm -hmm. They fortunately, seeing this huge vulnerability to our election system, still provide some updates that election departments can receive at a fee. Mm. But could you imagine doing your work that you do every day on a computer that was running on the systems from 2009? Yeah, like, it, just think about the everyday inconvenience, let alone like the ability to actually deliver democracy, which is what these folks are responsible for doing. That is outrageous. You know, it's not just the technology that election departments are using. It's the facilities. It's all sorts of things. So last year, in the face of this pandemic that was really impacting elections in a significant way, mm-hmm. including increasing the cost to administer them because election departments needed things like personal protective equipment and machinery to be able to serve more people by mail. We ended up leading a private funding effort 
because Congress did not allocate the funds that were required. They just allocated 10% of the $4 billion that election departments actually needed last year to make the process work. Is there a rationale for that? You would think with everything that election departments were facing, that last year would have been if any moment, the moment that our elected leaders would say, we have your back. And by that, we mean we will provide you with the basics that you need to be able to do your job for voters. And Mm -hmm. instead, what really happened in practice was those 8,000 election departments were sort of left to figure it out on their own. So again, experts estimated it was going to cost maybe $4 billion to administer a safe election. Through the CARES Act, Congress allocated about uh, $400 million. That's not enough. (laughs) Not enough. And, you know, in practice, what that meant was that we heard from election departments that had spent their full budget that they had for the year by the time that they were at their August primary, before they Mm. even were able to turn the quarter to November. And that when they got the federal funding, it was really critical, of course. But we heard from election departments um, and highly scrutinized places across the country that that funding only covered a portion of their postage, let alone the rest of the operation. So it wasn't enough. We ended up leading a private philanthropic effort that turned out to be the largest philanthropic effort to support election administration in the history of the country, where we ended up raising $350 million and regranted that to election departments um, across 49 states mm-hmm. and communities all over. Anyone that applied was able to get funds. And as a result of doing that work, not only were we able to actually help election departments make ends meet last year and deliver a smooth and secure process for voters that was safe, you know, election day did yeah. not turn into a super spreader event, <laughs> but we were also able to support election departments and really investing in things that they were not able to invest in for so long. And so we've heard from local election officials just some incredible stories about the systems and equipment and facilities that they were working with before. Here's one that I like have right in front of me that I just like mm-hmm. love to share. Yeah, hit me. You know, someone said if they had additional funding in the future, they would purchase a lot and build a new election office. Quote, we are currently in the basement of an old jail and it leaks terribly when it rains and it's a health hazard during early voting. There are many other safety issues, but our county doesn't have the funds to buy a new building. That is the type of facilities that election departments are using right now to do this load-bearing work of democracy. We have to invest in our elections in a more long-term, more robust way, and we have to do it now. We're going to take a quick ad break, but when we come back, we'll talk more about why private grants are not the answer to funding public infrastructure. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Battleground. I'm talking to Tiana Epps-Johnson of the Center for Tech and Civic Life. Your organization and, you know, the foundations, the Chan Zuckerberg, Schwarzenegger and the like stepped up in such a meaningful way. Leading question here, why is that not a sustainable path forward? (laughs) Yeah, private funding in an emergency is not the way 
to fund our elections. It wasn't Mm -mm. even an ideal way to fund them in an emergency, but it was critical. And we know now that without that, we would have been in a really challenging position. In order for election departments to be able to meet the needs of voters, in order for them to be able to deliver one of, you know, the process that we talked about earlier that's actually smooth, that works for everyone, we have to really have systems of robust public funding that's predictable, that's recurring, and that allows election departments to actually plan and to be resilient. And I lift that up for two reasons. The first, sometimes folks who are not as close as I am to this work every day, one of the things that you might miss is that the work of a local election official is essentially putting on like an incredible civic event. They do logistics for a living, right? And if you've ever planned an event, the thing that you know is really critically important are like two things, um, your budget, so knowing Mm -hmm. how much money you have, and then time to actually plan. And so right now, election departments have a lot more time than they did when we were in the crunch of 2020. But they need those resources in the long term to be able to do planful work so that we have a voting process that consistently works every election, not just in presidential cycles, and it works for everybody. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we have to really think about with why we need public funding Mm -hmm. into the future is because we have a system where there's new challenges that keep emerging for election departments to face for them to continue to be able to best serve voters. What do I mean by that? After the 2016 election, election departments not only needed to do the work that they had always done prior to 2016, but then these folks now are experts in cybersecurity out of necessity. They had to learn how to add to their portfolio of things that they do, defending our systems from attack. The average age of the field a couple of years ago was about 55. So a lot of folks that are approaching retirement age, and also not a lot of them are digital natives. Mm -hmm. And so when you're faced with learning email and then also needing to make sure that you are not being subjected to a phishing account because literally a hostile foreign actor might be trying to get (laughs) into your systems, that is a big learning curve. And those are exactly the types of things on the training side that we work to help election departments solve for. We actually developed the cybersecurity training that the federal government ended up purchasing and making available to all of the local election departments in the country after 16. And so what we know about elections is the responsibilities keep growing for these public servants on the front lines and that they probably will continue to grow while also the resources staying either stagnant or going down to be able to do this critical work. And so there's obviously a mismatch. How did we get here? Was there ever a point in which election administrations were like adequately funded and had the stuff they need? and somebody broke it? Or has it just always been one of those things where that, because it's never urgent, like most infrastructure fights aren't, they're never urgent until it's a crisis, and then they're the top of the list? Yeah, you know, I don't know. When I think about the future of election administration, I'm not hearkening back to like a time in my mind when it worked amazingly before. And I think there's two reasons for that. One of the big challenges has always been this decentralization. Yeah. And the second part is that elections today just are not like they have been in the past. And again, because a lot of those reasons that I shared, there's so many new complexities because of technology or different demands on election departments that we can't really look at it compared necessarily to the past. But what we do know is that the last major investment from the federal government to election departments was about 20 years ago. Huh. <laughs> and so that 
was when most of the equipment, for example, was purchased. And that's why many、mm. of the machines that are still in production today were purchased before the iPhone was invented. And so it is beyond time for the federal government to really step up and reinvest in a significant way to bolster this critical election infrastructure. And right now, while Congress is considering an infrastructure bill, is exactly the right time for that federal funding to come. Usually, when systems are broken and they stay broken, it's because somebody is benefiting from that brokenness. Right now, it seems like voters are losing, democracy is losing. Who is winning from this? This is one of those spaces where it's really hard to find anyone. Mm-hmm. Who is winning? Because not only are you know voters not able to participate to their fullest or getting fully pushed out、yeah. because they can't wait in hours long lines or can't find the information that they need in the first place to engage well. So you know voters certainly aren't winning, and election officials are really struggling too. They want to deliver a great process for their voters, and they are raising the flag, especially after 2020, that they need more to be able to do that. And so, it's really challenging to understand who might benefit from not only making the work harder for election officials, but also for voters. But what we do know is that what this ends up looking like in practice, in terms of who is marginalized from the process when there are. Burdensome friction in how we、yeah. participate. Our young voters, our communities of color who have been traditionally marginalized from the voting process. It's voters with disabilities who benefit from additional support sometimes at the polling place or having materials that are able to be easily understood on a screen reader or other things. And folks that, for example, might speak another language and need additional assistance in languages other than English. There's so many populations that end up bearing the greatest burden when the system doesn't work well. But it's really challenging to figure out anyone who is benefiting from this dysfunction, and it's time to move past it. One of the reasons that election administrators have been in the news lately is that a bunch of them are quitting, or at least expressing interest in leaving their jobs because of the threats against their life. What is it like for them right now, especially in the aftermath of 2020, which we will again caveat, as you said up top, was the most secure election in our lifetimes. It's really rough out there for many election officials right now. So、uh, a little bit of a glimpse from what I got to see on the front lines, working with election officials last year, were folks that hadn't seen weekends in、mm-hmm. I don't know how long. You know, folks that didn't have the equipment or machinery to do their work that literally were getting paper cuts trying to hand open envelopes that were coming in piles and piles because more people were voting by mail.、Mm-hmm. Then add on top of that threats that they were getting to their offices from for just doing their work well. Folks losing colleagues because they were working in a pandemic environment、mm-hmm. where not everyone was able to stay safe, and it. Hasn't really let up since then. We've heard election officials raise the alarm about the harassment that they have and continue to face, and what that has looked like includes in several states. We've seen data come out that election officials are considering leaving their jobs. I think the state of Pennsylvania, something like a quarter of election directors、mm-hmm. across counties plan to leave before 2024. So we have this huge pressure that's coming because it's a really challenging job right now. It's, it always has been kind of thankless, but it's it's really challenging right now.、Yeah. Combined with many of election officials are just naturally at the retirement age, yeah. And so all of these things are colliding at once. And I think 
that we have to be thinking about two paths forward. The first is how can we make sure that we are protecting election officials so that they're able to continue to serve voters and not experience the type of harassment that has extended as far in some cases to their children being Mm -hmm. bullied. But also, how can election department have the resources so that they can stave off and build confidence so that we might not see an environment in the first place that is so toxic and threatening to them? And I guess the last part is that no matter what, there's this incredible opportunity for folks who might be passionate about democracy and looking for a really tangible way to make a difference on a day-to-day basis and ensuring that other folks are able to vote by thinking about being an election official as a career path. One of the things that absolutely just like gave me energy all last year were the hundreds of thousands of people who stepped up for the first time to be poll workers. And I just like, I hope so many of those people consider sticking around in the field and thinking about a career in election administration, because I think that it could be really transformative for the future of what our elections look like. This seems like a good place to take a break. But when we come back, we'll talk more about election infrastructure. Battleground is back with Tiana Epps Johnson of the Center for Tech and Civic Life. What's the best case scenario? The best case scenario to my mind is that during the process that Congress is in right now, as they are considering investments in infrastructure, that they follow the call that we, along with election officials and city officials and state officials across the country are making. And that is for a $20 billion investment in election infrastructure that is available to election departments over the next 10 years. Funding to let them modernize their voter registration systems, funding to allow them to invest in facilities and security, funding to just actually pull our democracy into the 21st century so that no one is working on a Windows 7 Mm -hmm. machine anymore. (laughs) And so not only an investment that is at the level that allows election departments to have those public resources that are able to allow them to plan into the future and build resilient modern system, but also that in the best case, a huge percentage of those funds would be going directly to the local level. So we are calling on Congress to provide two thirds of that funding directly to local election departments, because at the end of the day, those are the departments that are doing this work. And oftentimes, when there have been investments in elections in the past, those funds have been given to the state and haven't actually made it to the front lines where they're needed. Your work feels so obvious to me. Like, clearly, we need to invest billions of dollars into election administration. Clearly, this should be something that both parties are supporting. Clearly, this is something that the president should be pushing for. And yet you face incredible opposition, including in the form of quite a number of lawsuits against the work that you guys have done. Can you share a little bit about some of that opposition you're up against? You know, I think one thing that we've experienced at CTCL that folks across the democracy space have experienced is what it looks like to work in a really politically fraught environment Mm -hmm. where you have to weather literal dis and misinformation campaigns. And one of the ways that we experienced that last year were frivolous legal challenges to the work that we were doing to directly support election departments with grant funding. It looked like it was a legal challenge. It was a legal challenge. But really what it was was a misinformation campaign meant to undermine people's confidence in the process. Mm -hmm. And so concretely, it looked like we provided uh, an open call to any election department in the country to apply for grant funding from us so that they could do those things like get PPE or equipment. Every election department that applied got funding. 2,500 election departments 
1,300 of those were election departments that are in some of our smallest communities in the country, 25,000 or fewer voters. The rest of those are election departments that include some of our largest cities. So really Mm -hmm. the whole span of what U.S. looks like. But we had these frivolous litigation campaigns trying to characterize this work as partisan work only meant to affect an election outcome. Mm -hmm. And when courts across 10 states, all the way up to the (laughs) Supreme Court twice, heard this every single time, they were like, there's no merit to this, obviously. And even quite conservative judges, you know, had rulings that are like, I can't tell the difference between the partisan and the nonpartisan hand sanitizer. So yeah, it's it's been, on the one hand, a challenging environment to move through because it takes resources, of course, to be able to make sure that we are keeping the record straight and that we're elevating the voices of election departments that really benefited um, in all sorts of ways from these resources and that need a much more substantial long-term investment of public funds in the future. But also we learned a lot about just the current context that everyone is working in and some of the ways that as an organization, how you weather a misinformation campaign, how you stay focused on what your values are, you stay focused on what the work is in front of you. And we just, you know, wake up every day, not super concerned about the misinfo noise and just really interested in helping election departments do what they need to do. Is there a world in which we transition to something like other democracies with a centralized election administration? I don't see the path where we're going to, from a structural perspective, move away from federalized elections. But I do think that there is a path where we can move to a system where there's some shared standards that we see across all election departments so that we have access to democracy that isn't dependent on our zip code. The other thing that I get in my mentions a lot when talking about election administration is we should just go to online voting. Why aren't we just doing it online? Why can't you text in your vote like on American Idol? Tiana, why can't we text in our votes like American Idol? Tell me why. (laughs) Two answers to this question. The first is that folks have tried different systems to test what it might be like to Mm -hmm. allow folks to vote on a mobile device or otherwise use the internet to vote. And I think that the headline for right now is that overwhelmingly, we just haven't gotten to a system that is secure enough, also provides for privacy for voters to actually be able to do that from a technological perspective. When we think about something like banking, for example, that we like, you know, it feels high risk and we do it online all the time. One thing that we talk less about is that our banking is pretty well insured, like literally. And so there's transaction fraud that happens like every day behind the scenes where we lose like one or two percent of the funds that are you can't have a one or two percent margin of error when you are um, counting votes. So that's one reason. The second part, again, goes back to resourcing. I actually think that it's absolutely possible that we could bring together our country's best and brightest and develop a system that would allow us to move to mobile voting that might be secure off the shelf. What I'm not convinced of is that we would be as a country ready to commit the resources to keep that system usable and not vulnerable in the long term. And so to my mind, like we can't make a big leapfrog in technology until we also know that we're going to commit the resources to keep that system usable into the future. And right now, the evidence that we have 
for example, with our voting equipment, shows us that we're not up for that challenge yet. (laughs) And so I think we need this first step of really being willing to invest in our systems and know that we have that commitment to the future. And that will allow for a pathway to a lot more innovation and advances in the way that we are able to modernize our system. But first, we have to get the fundamentals right. And we haven't yet. But I feel really hopeful that Congress has heard election officials call for the need for this infrastructure structure investment and that they're going to step up. Tiana, I am obsessed with the work that you do and what CTCL does. I think it's critical and also has the possibility of wildly changing who participates in the democratic process. So I am so glad you took the time to join Battleground today. Amanda, thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Tiana Epps Johnson for joining me on Battleground this week. And thank you to everyone who has emailed or left us a voicemail. If there's someone you think we should have on Battleground or a topic you'd like us to cover, please call and leave a message at 929-399-6748 or email us at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, which I'm sure you did, please give us a rating and a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Ottavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Basel is our executive producer. <laughs>